0: Hi, this is Colin McEnroe. What should I tell you first? I should tell you first that this is not the last episode of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. We're about to do an episode. It'll be our 10th, not that you're counting, but we're not quite done telling the story, even though obviously the story has kind of come to an angle of repose this week, right? The rock slide that has gone down the mountain is finally stopped in a certain place, and we're trying to figure out what that place is and how stable the rocks are and whether they might give way underneath us. And to do that, we've got Senator Chris Murphy and a young merchant marine and a professor. And it's starting to sound like Gilligan's Island, isn't it? Anyway, get ready. We'll be with you on the other side of the news. The United States Senate was made for moments like this. The framers predicted that factional fever might dominate House majorities from time to time.
1: Article 1, abuse of power. In this
2: article of impeachment, 48 senators have pronounced Donald John Trump, President of the United States, guilty as charged. I swore an oath before God exercise impartial justice. It was evil. It was corrupt. And this should never, ever happen to another president. Ever.
1: Article 2, obstruction of Congress.
2: On this article of impeachment, 47 senators have pronounced Donald John Trump, president of the United States, guilty as charged. I'm sure to hear abuse from the president and his supporters. Does anyone seriously believe that I would consent to these consequences other than from an inescapable conviction that my oath before God demanded it of me? And then you have some that used religion as a crutch, but, you know, it's a failed presidential candidate, so things can happen when you fail so badly running for president. Senate having tried Donald John Trump, President of the United States, and two-thirds of the Senators present not having found him guilty of the charges contained therein, it is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charges in said articles. This is politics, and we were treated unbelievably unfairly. It was all... Bullshit.
0: <laughs> I hope we will look back on this vote and say this was the day the fever began to break. I hope we will not say this was just the beginning.
2: The Senate sitting as a court of impeachment stands adjourned, sign die.
0: But we don't. All right? We're not adjourned. This is Colin McEnroe. Welcome to Pardon Me. This is our penultimate show, we think. You know, my favorite part from that montage—favorite is kind of a conditional word, but that montage done by our producer, Jonathan McNichol—it's not the bad word, which he says in the East Room of the White House. (laughs) We're sorry about the bad word, but he said it, not us. No, it's when he says, this should never happen to another president again. And I'm thinking— Good point. We'll try to warn future presidents not to do the kinds of stuff that you get impeached for. Uh, <laughs> but he hasn't obviously learned his lesson. You know, you can think about this whole process and this whole week a lot of ways. And one of them is a dark night in Baltimore and the gunshots ring out and there's a guy who's dead in the street. And there's another guy shot in the leg, leaning up against a tire. And then you hear that whistle.
2: Hey, Your lesson here, babe. You come at the
0: king, You best not miss. He's actually paraphrasing Ralph Waldo Emerson, believe it or not. And yeah, that's a way to look at it, and that's a little bit scary, because if you come at the king and you miss, the king is still standing, and he may take his revenge. And there's been some talk of that kind this week, but I don't know. I actually went for a walk in the rain today with like no hat because I just wanted to feel the rain on my head. And I wound up thinking about just about all the other stuff that's been going on. You know, I mean, it was announced today that we're paying Mar-a-Lago $17,000 a month in some instances to house Secret Service details that are guarding Donald Trump when he can't be bothered to be at the White House. You know, and there's emoluments coming in, even though the suit doesn't appear to be working in court. And and there's just, you know, he pardoned war criminals over the objections of his own military leaders in the last six weeks. And, And I could go on because that's the real reality. This isn't one story. It's this unfolding set of stories all the time. And maybe impeachment was never set up to deal with that. Impeachment might have been a pretty good way to deal with the Ukraine story, but not for the polymorphously political perverse world we live in right now. That's too big. And we'll have to think about it some other way. I know. Elections. So, at this time, it's our privilege to talk to U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. Welcome to our show, sir. Thanks for having me. You've been through an incredibly traumatic week, and I'm not really talking immediately about the impeachment trial so much as the trade of Mookie Betts by the Red Sox. I think we should get that off the table right away. Uh, it hasn't happened yet,
3: by the way. This guy, as we speak, is still like having his physical evaluation, but what an absolute disaster. What's the point of being a sports fan if they're going to trade away the best player you've ever had on your team in the middle of his Best seasons, I'm heartbroken.
0: Right. So, as if that weren't bad enough there was this other thing happening. We should say, I'm talking to you on Thursday, we're about half an hour before the president's speculated or at least announced press conference to react to this. Have your feelings about this been fully processed? I mean, this isn't a big surprise. The outcome isn't a shock. Other than Senator Romney's votes, there weren't too many surprises. So, I don't know, what's going on inside you right now? I mean, I've had, you know,
3: two conflicting emotions over the last week. First, I guess the worst case scenario to me was that all of these Republicans were going to vote to acquit but also deny the fact set. And to me, the danger to democracy is, you know, not just letting a president get away with corrupting his office in order to solicit foreign interference it's the whole idea that we lose a collective belief in an objective narrative that we are all trying to drive towards and so i guess i get some consolation in the fact that many of my republican colleagues in the end decided to acquit him but did concede that the house managers had made their case and in the long run I still think there's a lot of damage done to democracy by normalizing this kind of conduct, but I also wonder whether we preserved a belief that underneath all of the spin all of the propaganda that's coming at us from inside and outside the country, we still agree that facts are occasionally still facts.
0: One of your colleagues, Senator Brown, wrote today in The New York Times, I think, that he has asked some of his Republican colleagues in the Senate, if you vote to acquit, what will you do to keep this president from getting worse? So now we have that specter, right? We have a situation where he did these things, the facts weren't particularly in contention. It was more about the interpretation, uh, the weight given to the facts. Some people might expect him to see this as an invitation to exhibit even more of the same kinds of behaviors. Do you feel as though there are checks available? Senator Brown said that the Republican responses he was getting were shrugs and sheepish looks, which probably aren't going to cut it. I don't know that
3: there are any internal checks left. I mean, this is the check that's available to you in the Constitution, the removal from uh, office. Um, And we uh, ultimately endorsed in some serious way the president's conduct. So I think we are now left to simply hope. That the president won't continue to try to cheat in the upcoming election, uh, and ultimately reserve uh, the power of elections as the only um, check that we have left, uh, and that has been our fear all along. I mean, right in the middle of the impeachment process, the president was sending Rudy Giuliani back to Ukraine to dig up more dirt on the Bidens, and so you know, there's no case to be made, as some people like Senator Collins try, that the president is contrite and he will have learned he hasn't uh, and so I think we have to accept the notion that we are not going to be able to stop him uh, from Continuing to attempt to corrupt his office for political gain in the next nine months, we're just going to have to try to be better than them electorally and remove him from office the old fashioned way.
0: I want to ask you a little bit about how you think the Senate is going to function post trial. Very specifically, too, since we're talking about the condition of the election, one of the acts that's kind of hanging fire there is the so called SHIELD Act, sponsored by Congresswoman Loftgren and Senator Klobuchar. These prohibit the exchange of campaign information between candidates and foreign governments governments, create a duty to report to the FBI about those kinds of contacts. This is, I believe, passed in the House or waiting for the Senate. What do you think is going to happen with a piece of legislation like that that seems directed at or desirous of creating a remedy to the problem we're talking about? Uh, Listen, we
3: had to... uh drag Mitch McConnell kicking and screaming to the table in order to get some money in this latest budget sent down to the states for election security measures. Uh, And it took a Herculean effort to simply try to get some resources so that states like Connecticut can stop the Russians from hacking into our voter system. I don't think there's much of a chance that we're going to get any of these other measures that seek to make it a little bit harder for campaigns to coordinate with foreign governments passed through the Senate and to the president's uh, desk. I mean, Mitch McConnell, in the end, just doesn't want to be in a fight with the president on this issue of foreign interference, he just does not want to bring these issues to be debated on the Senate floor because he fears it'll be an awkward conversation amongst Republicans, given their inability to understand what Trump is going to say on these kind of subjects on a day-to-day basis. So, uh, you know, I think we've got money coming down to the states that will be helpful, but I don't think that we'll see any more action from McConnell, uh, especially after impeachment finishes.
0: You know, when you see these awkward conversations, it's one of the things that I've been trying to understand here, and I'm not asking you to go inside the minds of your fellow senators your republican senators but i feel like we live in a time where the intimidation coming from the top is unprecedented, at least in my lifetime, the way in which people like Ambassador Yovanovich or Colonel Vindman wound up feeling as though they were really put in a position of danger or jeopardy. And as I look at some of the people who seem to be wrestling with this vote yesterday, and when I look at Senator Romney, who I just listened to an interview he did with the Daily of the New York Times, and at the end, Mark Levivich said, I just hope he knows what's coming, which is know said it's going to be like a chandelier falls on him. I mean, the consequences, it seems to me, for defying the president are unusually high. It's never an easy thing to do with any president, but we seem to be on virgin territory here.
3: Yeah. And it's because, you know, this presidency is a cult of personality. And so that pressure doesn't just come from above through the president's Twitter feed and the social media campaigns of his family members, it comes from below as well. I mean, there is a unfortunate viciousness to much of the president's base. And that is the reality for, you know, especially members of the president's party who are today expected to pledge their 100 percent fealty to the chief executive. And so I think that that worry about crossing the president for Republicans is, you know, not just what's going to happen from the white house uh, but also you know just how uncomfortable their lives and the lives of their family members are going to be you know once that harassment campaign starts from the president's base back home and i, I think that's a That's a real fear that a lot of members have.
0: Just as yesterday's verdict was coming down, we had almost simultaneously Attorney General Barr issuing new restrictions, requiring the FBI and others under the Department of Justice to get specific attorney general approval before investigating any 2020 presidential candidates. You know, that could be interpreted any number of ways, but it did seem a little bit like a shot across the bow, particularly given the timing. Yeah, I mean
3: I think one of the really disturbing legacies of the last year has been the complete folding in of the Department of Justice into the White House's political operation. It's always been an awkward relationship, right? The Attorney General is selected by the president, technically works at and under the White House's direction, but has always preserved a level of independence. In part because you have to, you know, understand that there may be a point at which you are forced to ask some tough questions about the conduct of the White House, Bob Barr has just made himself a part of the president's reelection campaign, and this sort of preview that they are not going to take seriously any outside attempts to help the president will, in the end, ultimately just be an invitation to those entities, whether they are in North Korea or... China or Russia that are going to leap to the president's defense. So, unfortunately, I think that announcement is going to make it more likely that you see the Russians or someone else get involved once again in the upcoming election.
0: Given that level of divisiveness, how equipped is the Washington apparatus these days to pull together about something that might be a threat that has no particular partisan tincture to it? And I'm thinking of coronavirus. That may be the next, it, it may be less than we think it is. We don't know how lethal it is right now or how pervasive it's going to be. But imagine that it were to loom larger than it does now. That's going to require some kind of marshalling of the political apparatus, of the Department of Health and Human Services, of Homeland Security, and we're all going to kind of need to be on the same page, ideally. How equipped is Washington to do that right now? I mean,
3: there is this general contempt for government that exists today inside the Republican Party and certainly inside this administration. We were in a briefing yesterday morning with all of the top health officials in the Trump administration, and we were just completely confused as to why they weren't proposing an emergency funding bill to fight the coronavirus because we all hear from our local public health infrastructure that they are not ready, that they need more resources to do training, to do screening, to do identification, and yet the Trump administration isn't proposing doing any new money. And it's in part because they just have a fundamental disbelief that government can deliver anything meaningful. And so they're not ready to make uh, those investments today. The other problem with coronavirus is it requires an international response. And so the gutting of American diplomatic power, the emptying out of personnel globally representing the United States is going to make it a lot harder on us to try to marshal the international resources to fight this disease, to track where people are moving Moving from China before they get to the United States. So it's a dangerous uh, moment. This is probably the least equipped administration in our lifetime to deal with a pandemic disease. And I don't think they're ready.
0: Right. I think it, it goes even further. I mean, in order to deal effectively with the international problem, you've got to have open channels to a lot of different governments. And they've got to feel as though they're not going to be penalized for being open about what they know. In other words, if you suggest that you're, that all of your policies are going to be punitive restrictive and inclined to impose all kinds of bans without a lot of evidence, you create a feedback loop where the other governments don't want to tell you what they know.
3: Yeah. I mean, listen, there's this general disposition that nations have today, which is to stay away from the United States, right? You're going to get double-crossed by us. You're going to get drawn and dragged into our domestic politics. And so you're just better off doing deals with other nations and staying clear of the Trump administration. And of course, that is the worst possible position to be in if you were trying to protect this country from a disease that runs through a whole bunch of other countries. And then, uh, Colin, the other thing I worry about is this blue state, red state divide. Um, inside this meeting yesterday, we had an awkward moment in which some senators from a democratic state raised some issues they were having locally, and they were sort of viewed as making a political attack on the president. And so I do worry about our ability to communicate with this administration from Democratic-leaning states because I think the administration is going to view any issues we raise with how they are dealing with the coronavirus as, you know, an attempt to politically smear the president rather than a good-faith effort to try to make sure that we're all on the same page.
0: Well, you just saw a microcosm of that with the global entry policy towards New York State where their immigration policies were paired up with a punitive action for travelers from New York.
3: Yeah, and that's been the entire way that this administration has uh, has operated, is to sort of, you know, just separate the states into the Trump states and the, and the Hillary states. And, you know, we unfortunately get treated with a, you know, very different standard than the states that voted for the president and that they hope will vote for him in 2020.
0: You were, I think, pretty hot under the collar at the end of the State of the Union address. A lot of people were. You said that you wished you hadn't gone. You know, this is an election year State of the Union address. We know what they're like. They tend to be laundry lists of accomplishments. What was different about this? And I guess the other half of the question is, I don't know, you slept on it? Did you feel any different?
3: No, I was so mad. I was so mad because it wasn't just the president's conduct. It was also the conduct of the Republicans in the room who very gladly and willingly turned it into a political rally. I mean, they were chanting four more years at the State of the Union speech, which I don't think I've ever seen before. And the way in which you know the president and, you know, turned it into a reality TV spectacle. I mean, I don't doubt that giving out congressional gold medals and reuniting families is good TV. I don't know that it's the proper use of a State of the Union speech. So I felt suckered. I felt like I had been invited to a State of the Union speech. It turned into a political campaign event. You're right that presidents tend to, especially in their final State of the Union speech, make the case for reelection. But I thought he crossed a line. And That'll be the the last time
0: I make that mistake. Have you spoken to Senator Romney yet? And if not, what do you want to say to him when you get that chance? You know, I've had the privilege of getting to know Senator Romney over the last year. We
3: spent a week together in the spring traveling through the Middle East. He's the chair of the Middle East subcommittee on the Foreign Relations Committee, and I'm the ranking Democrat. So we talk a lot. And I have gotten to talk about the president's conduct with Mitt a lot. I think he knows that he is already a figure of history. And he he is really looking... At a lens a hundred years out in terms of how the history books are going to treat him. And I think he does worry that democracy can fall apart. And if this is, you know, one of the pieces of that story as to how this experiment ends, he wants to be able to say that he was one of the folks who stood up on the right side of it. So I just came home last night and I, you know, talked to my kids, my 11 year old, my 8 year old, not about my speech, but about Mitt Romney's speech. And I think a lot of parents did that. And I guess what I want to say to him when I get to chance to talk to him is to say thank you for allowing a lot of parents to be able to teach a lesson to their kids.
0: That was U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. So there's a kind of voice that we haven't included so far in this story. and all these weeks, we've been telling this story. And it's the voice of somebody, just a regular citizen, who went to see the proceedings. And luckily... As fate would have it, we were contacted by a guy named Kyle Knickerbocker. You know, Kyle Knickerbocker is kind of a good name for this, too. It seems like the name of somebody who should have been present at some landmark historical event. So Kyle Knickerbocker gets in touch with us to tell us, yeah, he's been going to these things. And here's who Kyle is.
4: So I'm a U.S. merchant marine. I've been doing so about 10 years now. Started off down near New London. Mm -hmm. And uh, ever since then, I've worked offshore. In fact, next week I will be getting deployed overseas to uh, Diego Garcia. So I'll be looking forward to that.
0: I actually didn't admit it at the time, but I didn't know what Diego Garcia is. It's actually this island in the Indian Ocean that's leased by the U.S. Navy from the British government. And it's got, I don't know, it doesn't really sound that great, actually. It used to be plantations and then the only mammals on the island, except rats, are these like former plantation descendant animals that are like nocturnal donkeys. Anyway... But Kyle, Kyle, that wouldn't faze Kyle. You meet him for five minutes, you know. He's the kind of upstanding, optimistic person who's going to make the best of a situation. He's going to have a pet rat that he's really close to when he's in Diego Garcia. Anyway, he turns out to be the kind of person, yeah, he wants to go see these hearings. And sometimes he'd have to hire people. This is a thing you can do easily in Washington, hire somebody to wait in line for him. So I was curious about what made an impression on Kyle. It seemed his fellow citizens in the galleries, in the hallways, made a bigger impression than,
4: you know, knowing what Doug Collins smells like. There's going to be people from all different types of background, Mm -hmm. political preference, and purposes, you know, Mm. why they're here, uh, whether they're going to be here for just a moment, a couple days, if they're here with a group, by themselves. So kind of understanding where those people were, it kind of gave me perspective as to— Why should I be here? But, you know, I was still curious.
0: And Kyle was a little bit reticent. I mean, he wasn't really going to deliver some judgment to me. He wasn't going to tell me exactly how he felt about... Any of what he had seen, I think the point for him was in seeing it as opposed to showing up on some guy's radio show and delivering a judgment. But, well, I asked him a little bit about what he saw the members of Congress doing while he was there.
4: Despite all the issues that they're dealing with and and the different the committees they're on and the different people they talk with all, all the time, they were kind of thrust into this. Regardless of if you're Congressman Jim Himes or if you're the House impeachment managers, these people they had a job to do and they and they took it up, I believe, and I give them a lot of credit. I never once felt like there was a moment where they said, "Well, you know, I f- I really feel like I need to go home. I need to." Mm. No, you have a job to do. We voted you in. Let's see you in action.
0: Well, I was still curious
4: to know what he made of it. But one
0: thing that was clear to me, and I think this part of of it's really important for everybody, which is that, you know, this whole government was set up with the idea that people would be Kyle Knickerbocker, (laughs) that people would take an interest in what was going on. They didn't know when they were setting up our government that there was going to be like Donkey Kong and The Bachelor and stuff like that. And the whole idea was that people would do this. They would come and they would see if they wanted to, and it would be open for that reason too. So, you know, I still felt as though I hadn't really cracked the Kyle Knickerbocker nut. Like he hadn't really told me what kind of impression this made on him? Whether it changed his mood or anything like that. Although when we did get into a conversation about mood, he had an interesting comparison
4: to make. What I felt like it just brought it all. It was very real. It was like it's like when when somebody's let's say you have a brother and your brother's in trouble, right? You get mm-hmm. home and you didn't know that your brother's in trouble, right? And everybody's sitting around the, the dinner table, right? Mm-hmm. You walk in, hey, how you? Do? Oh oh, okay, somebody's in trouble. That's almost kind of what it felt like. That was the mood. Yeah, that was the mood, yeah.
0: And even though Kyle and I wound up talking for, I don't know, 20 minutes, I never really got him to say exactly what he thought. And I I reflected on that later, and I thought, well, you know, I mean, the day that we were talking was – right after the final vote, and then the very bizarre prayer breakfast, and then the even more strange East Room, whatever that was, the rant in the East Room of the White House. And there's a sense that Romney is going to get punished and Vindman's going to get punished. And I mean, why, if you were a 28-year-old merchant marine with your whole life ahead of you, why would you tell anybody what you were thinking? That wouldn't be smart. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kyle, you know, he kept a smile on his face and some ramrod merchant marine posture. And I, I appreciate that about him. And I also asked him, is this going to get to be a habit, right? Is he going to be one of these guys who or people anyway, who show up at important public
4: governmental landmark events? I went to these impeachment hearings and trial by myself. Mm-hmm. But I think I hope in the future that, you know, if I was to get more involved, that I, I get some people coming with me.
0: I just hope that's not his idea of a tender date, all right? Because that's going to be weird. Not everybody's going to want to do that. But I think it is important that you heard from Kyle. And, you know, pretty soon he'll be on Diego Garcia, and this will all be a really distant memory. And we'll still be here with the political weather we're living in right now. We're going to take a break here and come back with a new edition of Factoids with Tyone Wolf, and then a conversation with Ryan Goodman about how these senators will be remembered in their obituaries. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe. This is Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. And this won't be the last factoids, but it might be the next to last factoids from Kyone Wolf.
1: Censure resolutions were introduced against Presidents Lincoln, Buchanan, and Taft. But when they were passed, the C word was removed. The grassroots group MoveOn.org started with a petition to censure President Clinton and move on to pressing issues facing the nation. In 1967, the U.S. Senate voted 92 to 5 to adopt a resolution censuring Connecticut Senator Thomas Dodd for converting campaign funds to personal use. Andrew Jackson is the only president to be formally censured by the Senate. Three years after the censure, his supporters got the censure expunged, but I still know about it, so that didn't work. Republicans were offended when Adam Schiff claimed that potential impeachment defectors were threatened with having their heads on pikes. When Mitt Romney's decision became public on Wednesday, Donald Trump Jr. immediately demanded by tweet that Romney be punished by expulsion from the Senate Republican conference. On the floor of the Senate on Wednesday, Chuck Schumer used Dershowitzian as an adjective. In the 1990s, White House Counsel Pat Cipollone worked on a case supporting the Knights of Columbus's right to put a Christmas creche on the town green in Trumbull, Connecticut. The Knights eventually won, as Cipollone was made an assistant supreme advocate in their New Haven office. <laughs> Just in case you think this kind of thing only happens here, the Forestry Union in Turkey estimated that 90% of the 11 million trees planted by the government three months ago have died because they were planted incorrectly. The administration of President Erdogan, who planted some trees himself, claimed that 95% of the trees survived. Under perfect conditions, 65 to 70% of the trees would survive. In his State of the Union address, President Trump talked about planting one trillion trees... There are currently three trillion trees on Earth. I'm Kyone Wolf. This has been Factoids. You
0: know, we've been hearing a lot about history over the last few days. Actually, we've been hearing a lot about history for weeks and months, but very specifically about how history understands something, how recollection understands an event. It was there in the speech of Adam Schiff as he closed the House manager's argument, and he talked about people who voted for vindication would be tied with steel cords to this event throughout history. And then you heard it again in Mitt Romney talking about, I think he said something like, you know, we're all footnotes to history ultimately, but still, you'll be judged, you'll be understood. And Maybe that first judgment, that first thing that we could call a historical judgment, is a person's obituary. And so Ryan Goodman, who's our guest right now, founding co-editor-in-chief of Just Security, professor of law at NYU School of Law and professor of politics and sociology at NYU, did a very interesting thing. He went through the obituaries of people who participated in the ultimate non-impeachment of Richard M. Nixon because, in fact, it didn't get that far, Uh, just to sort of see how things turned out for them when they died. So, first of all, after that long and unwieldy introduction, Ryan Goodman, thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: So your question is, you know, now that it's all over and the votes have all been counted up, well, even before that happened, you were wondering, how will this be processed? And it really, obituaries are kind of an interesting first read of history. They usually come before the annals of history are really kind of carved out. So explain what you did. So uh, I went through
5: and looked at every single Republican who had voted for or against the articles of impeachment for Richard Nixon in the summer of 1974 when it came out of the House Judiciary Committee. And that was the kind of historic vote because by the bipartisan vote that the House Judiciary took at that moment in time, then writing was basically on the wall that Nixon was going to be impeached, convicted, and removed. So it was all the pressure one could imagine on those Republicans to either break with or stay with their party. But then what I decided to do is go through all of the major newspapers to see how they were remembered in their obituaries based on this one day, this one vote in all of their careers and how much it defined their legacy.
0: Maybe you could say a little bit more about why you were interested in that. I was interested in it because I
5: thought, in part, so much of the conversation around how Republican senators would vote whether or not to convict or acquit President Trump— Circled around questions of political self interest and whether or not they would be reelected or thrown out by the Republican Party if they strayed. And all of that seemed to be about short term thinking and only what mattered for maybe November 2020. And I thought this is something that's much more significant and solemn than that, and that it's a moment for them to, in fact, reflect on how they'll be understood. Forever and self understood, (laughs) understood by their children, their grandchildren, and how it even affected, in some significant respect, their family name, because these are people who have obviously obtained some level of power and prominence in our society. But their name and what they carry with them is so defined by this choice, as Adam Schiff in some sense had actually said it on the floor of the Senate, because it is a choice that so significantly shapes the course of our nation's history, this one vote. So that's why I decided to do it and what I was looking for.
0: Let's actually hear a little bit of how Senator Mitt Romney did process part of that question.
2: The people will judge us for how well and faithfully we fulfill our duty. The grave question the Constitution tasks senators to answer is whether the president committed an act so extreme and egregious that it rises to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. Yes, he did.
0: So one of the problems with the Nixon impeachment, as we alluded to, is it didn't really get far enough for us to have the kind of full head count that we we have right now. And and in some ways, some of the most dramatic activities of major players in the Nixon impeachment was sort of behind the scenes. The people who even went walked to the White House, went to him and said, "This can't go on any any longer." And there were important Republicans who did that. But as you say, the Judiciary Committee does provide an opportunity for a nose. So as you looked at the obituaries of those people, what did you see? So
5: the one thing that stood out for me the most is how much this one decision in their lives was elevated to the level of the headline. So what would you summarize just in, within a headline or reference in a headline to reflect a person's entire life and career in public service and things like that? So many of them the very headline was about this. It was about quote unquote, Nixon defender dies. <laughs> the one of them was like a congressman who broke with GOP to back Nixon impeachment dies. That's also reflected in the text in the body of the obituaries. One of the Republicans, uh, Thomas Railsback, congressman who broke with the GOP, he spent 16 years in Congress. He took a leadership role on multiple issues, juvenile justice reform, a bunch of other issues. That's not discussed in his obituary. The only thing that's discussed in his obituary is how he was one of the band of Republicans behind the scenes who worked in a very bipartisan way, ultimately, to bring forward the articles of impeachment. It's all about that. And so it's both the positive and the negative, and for others, it's reflected very negatively on them, uh, how they did not kind of stand up for Constitution. And country over party. And similarly, a great deal of emphasis in the obituary, if not exclusively, on this one vote in their entire career.
0: Of course, a lot of that depends on the eyes and brain of the people reading the obituary, too. I was listening to Mitt Romney today talk to Mark Leibovich on the Daily Podcast of the New York Times. You know, and and already he had heard people Buying groceries in Florida last weekend, he had people yelling "traitor" at him, or "stay," you know, "stay with the team." There are people who are going to read an obituary about what a senator or representative did with a different set of eyes. There are people who would look at some of those seven the seven Republicans who were on the Judiciary Committee who joined with the Democrats to vote for at least one article of impeachment. There are some people who would say, oh, yeah, those guys were traitors. That's
5: right. And I do think that's one of the great complications of how much we can draw from the lesson of the Nixon period to today and the future. For how will the obituaries be written of the Republicans, both in the House and the Senate, on the Trump impeachment? Because the big question there is in part like who writes the obituary? Mm-hmm. And, you know, who writes our history? And how will history look back and understand this? And I do think that, you know, the one major complication is the way I look at it is about questions of disinformation. So will there still be, you know, not a country written only by two parties, but also two realities? Are there going to be two different sets of realities about what we just passed through in these past few months with the impeachment. One saying, yeah, exactly what you just said, disloyal, and will maybe paint somebody like Mitt Romney as though he is after self-interest or aggrandizement. I could imagine that version versus the other version, which is courage, standing up for country, standing up for religious principles that guide him as an individual, motivating his vote. I mean, the way I do think of it is that over time, I think it's going to favor the latter by a lot, in part because I think there's a lot of political interest and right wing, to be honest with you, media interest in promulgating a lot of disinformation about the underlying allegations for the Ukraine impeachment. And those will dissipate over time because there won't be as much interest in buttressing the President, because Trump won't be president after, at a minimum, uh, after five years from now. He's not going to be president, and there won't be so much interest in creating this, what I've seen as, as much of a false narrative around the allegations. And I think over time, my sense is that history will reflect what he did. And, you know, just one version of this that I did actually cite in the piece there was a statement. Signed by over 2,000 historians across the country saying that the allegations against President Trump for what he did with Ukraine and the interference in the election basically saying that it crosses the line of impeachment and they can't imagine anything worse in a certain sense. So, you know, those will be a large part of the people who write our history, are the historians. So that's why I think it's going to trend in that direction and somebody like Romney or Justin Amash in the House will be vindicated for having taken such a courageous stance.
0: And that also gets to this other question, though, which is that question, and we sort of alluded to it before, as to whether we... We'll have parallel narratives that never really join together and merge into a single road. You know, you're suggesting that, yeah, some of the ways in which stories have been set up to vitiate the arguments against President Trump right now, some of those will dissipate. They'll be less meaningful and a discernible fact pattern of verifiable stories and proof will kind of become a mainstream understood truth. Can we say that with real confidence? I feel like I'm, I'm 65 years old right now. I'm living through a time where, in fact, reality seems so fungible, so much a product of people's predispositions. I don't know that if, if I have confidence, the way I might have had 10 or 15 years ago, that there'll be such a thing as settled truth 15 or 20 years down the road. I
5: think it's hard to judge. <laughs> and anybody who says they have confidence, I think, should be treated with a lot of skepticism. I do think that we live in an age of the media environment and information environment that people are working through in their daily lives is so different than it's been in the past in the ways in which through social media and the like, people are living in totally segregated media cocoons. and. I'm not sure what breaks that. So, you know, you do polling and the polling data is there's such a huge differential between, for example, Fox News viewers versus MSNBC news viewers. And I do think that we do have something most unusual that I do think might then pass, which is a White House that promotes a huge amount of disinformation, a president promotes a huge amount of disinformation. And that's, I think, very different than in the past as well. So how much that continues, I think, will dictate to some significant degree how much this media environment, in the way in which we have it, also continues. And who knows? I mean, I try to think of, are there parallels that we can think of, like how the Reagan administration has been understood over time? If anything, there's something strange about that, because in some sense, Reagan is lionized in an almost bipartisan way. (laughs) But we shall see. I do think that history will not look well upon the Trump administration. It just seems there's so many egregious problems that have destroyed the constitutional fabric and the norms that we're used to. But this is just a prediction in a certain sense that there will be a reckoning with that at a certain point. And part of the reckoning will be that when there is a Democratic president, in the White House, then I think the Republican Party will not (laughs) support the forms of disruption and norms breaking and empowerment of the executive. So that might be one of the ways in which we get a counterbalancing and a reassessment and a reckoning of how destructive the Trump administration has been to these kind of foundational norms that the country is based on. And then somebody like Justin Amash and Mitt Romney where the stances they have taken will come out looking extraordinarily favorable in the sense of how much they were willing to break when it really counted.
0: All of this stuff really fascinates me. I'm old enough to have been at least kind of a teenager, young adolescent at the time of the Nixon hearings. I certainly lived through as a journalist the Clinton impeachment. Although you know, I went back, I listened to this these two amazing podcast seasons of Slow Burn, one about Nixon and Watergate, the other one about Clinton. There was so much there that I'd forgotten. And you know, there's this whole area of history called collective memory, which is sort of how we understand things as opposed to the bare facts. There's a terrific Michael Shudson book called Watergate and Collective Memory or something like that anyway, about the fact that, you know, for the most part, people who've lived through something often can't enumerate the facts of it very well. They have sort of general impressions of the time. That's another thing that your piece made me think about, which is that even 10 or 15 years out, it may be difficult for a lot of us to reconstruct exactly what was going on. We've been drinking from such a fire hose of information and, for many of us, truly alarming indicators. I'm not sure that I'll be able to tell the story coherently 10 or 15 years from now.
5: Yeah, I totally see what you're describing, and I also think that, you know, just one piece of it in terms of how we even understand what just happened in the last 24 hours, because in some ways it's the bookend of the entire impeachment process and the way in which our media is now telling us things like, you know, this is a quote-unquote a win for Mitch McConnell and for the president, and the president's going to go on an impeachment victory lap or something like that. You know, I think what's so extraordinary about the moment is a couple things that, you know, the way I had thought about the trial and the way that for me personally, and having been so close to observing every minutia of movement, is that I always thought it was a no-win situation for Mitch McConnell, because one path was to have a robust trial, of witnesses, and it would be devastating for the president, as we can already glean from what John Bolton would have to say. And the other path was what he did, which was a very truncated, you know, from my perspective, what would be a mistrial, a sham trial in any other courtroom without witnesses and and the like. And there's no exoneration or acquittal from that. So today to see the president holding up newspapers with his name Trump acquitted as though that's a victory or, or the like is actually from my perspective of what I've seen through this entire period it looks much more like you know somebody was engaged in the criminal act and they got off <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, it's just such a but I cannot totally imagine that he's playing to a very different media environment there was a very good piece that was written during the period of the House impeachment proceedings that kind of dovetails with what we're describing which talked about that there were two impeachment hearings going on one was in Fox News and further far-right-wing media and that's who many of the members of the Republican Party were playing to. And that's why it looked like to somebody like me, like strange theatrics and not really getting at the issue and if anything filled with disinformation. But that's they weren't playing for me. I'm not their audience. And so when he's holding up those newspapers, it's a very different audience that is receiving a very different message from that. And then the other bookend of this entire process, I thought, was not in the formal votes that were taken, though that's obviously the most important part of it, but in the statements made by senators, Republican senators, when they voted to acquit. And so I actually counted those up and looked at them in detail. We published a piece about this with all of their statements in it. There are six Republican senators who all said that the House managers proved their case. But then, you know, only one of them, Mitt Romney, decided on that basis to convict. The other one said it was inappropriate or wrong, but not worthy of conviction. And I think that's significant for our time. A bipartisan majority of the Senate agreed that the allegations were proven by the House managers. And so, you know, the president can maybe claim he can say exoneration. I wasn't found guilty as, you know, based on a conviction <laughs> or a criminal or, or not a criminal, but a, or a penalty of conviction and removal. But my goodness sakes, a bipartisan majority of the Senate, which is very hard to come by with all the pressure on these Republicans, currently found him guilty as charged in a very strong sense of what that means. So maybe that also will seep through in terms of how people think about what we all just collectively experienced.
0: Right. I mean, as you and I are speaking, the president has just wrapped up this 50-minute Peroration of just kind of in which he kind of rambled through the entire history of his presidency and even the months that preceded it. And I found myself thinking of those six or so senators that you're talking about, some of whom use the rationale this is a warning to him. He will be chastened. He will be aware of the fact that when he does things that cross certain lines, the world is watching. And so, you know, a lot of how that plays is going to depend on the facts of the ensuing months leading up to November and, as you alluded before, possibly another four years after that. But if this turns into an even even more of an untrammeled expression of power and majesty and unchecked might on the part of President Trump, some of those assurances offered by those people who who did perceive offenses to have been committed, but just not worthy of impeachment. That kind of solace that they offer is going to seem rather cheap if we're about to go into some kind of new reign of terror.
5: Yeah, I think so. And so Senator Susan Collins from Maine, (laughs) within 24 hours, backed up of her statement to say, well, only I I hope it's aspirational (laughs) that he will be chastened Mm -hmm. or learned his lesson. And I honestly think in the most solemn way possible, we are headed down a very, very dark corridor. Because President Trump has taken this, it seems by all indications, as a sign that he is unfettered. And he, to a certain extent, he's correct in that perception, because this means no congressional oversight. And the big question is, what can the House really do when you, for example, When you have the executive branch not even respecting subpoenas on regular oversight, plus when they're at the zenith of their power through impeachment power, and when people come before the House and have lied to the House or to the Senate, who does the Congress rely on to enforce the law against lying to Congress? The Justice Department, which is run by... Attorney General Barr, which I would think those witnesses take solace in the fact that they suffer no risk of legal liability under Attorney General Barr. The only way in which they might think that their incentive structure aligns differently is because this presidency might be over within 12 months, and it might be a very different Justice Department that can look back at both violations of law and criminal law in the administration and violations of lying to Congress and failing to honor subpoenas by Congress. So just to take one example, you know, I think one thing that's just remarkable about the Ukraine allegations is a criminal law that's in our country called the Hatch Act, which says that U.S. officials cannot engage in political campaigns in favor of one candidate or another. The allegations totally implicate the acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, in Hatch Act violations. Independent nonpartisan groups have filed complaints under this heading. Now, Mick Mulvaney might have no concern whatsoever in an Attorney General Barr Justice Department, but come January 21st, 2021, he needs to think about a very different calculation, potentially. So I think that's the way in which I think there is still some check. It's about what happens after this period. But The period that we're entering right now I think is a very worrisome one for the country.
0: That was Professor Ryan Goodman, founding co-editor-in-chief of Just Security. That's our show, too. I'm Colin McEnroe. This episode was produced, as always, by Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants. Thanks this week to Gina Matruda. And uh, next week is Valentine's Day weekend. We couldn't leave you without a date, so we are going to do a show. We'll try to make it a really romantic impeachment show. But for now, thanks for listening this week. You can hear us always on Connecticut Public Radio on Saturdays at noon until we're not there anymore. always in places where podcasts are dispensed.